Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. A positive example of a church who are doers of the word is found in the third chapter of Revelation. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me there now. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, we come to the sixth of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor addressed to the church at Philadelphia. This church of Philadelphia is one of only two churches of the seven, the other being Smyrna, that the Lord had no rebuke for, no condemnation. Uh, he encouraged them to keep doing what they were doing, and that is to hold tightly to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So let's read now, Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and I've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I've loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. You might have noticed that in each of these letters, the very last verse says that this letter is a blessing to anyone who would hear it and obey it and to the churches, plural. Now, in the immediate context, each letter is addressed to one specific church, in this case, to the church in the city of Philadelphia. But all churches in every epoch of history can learn from it and be edified by it. And I don't know about you, but I've been edified by these letters and the Lord's uh, teaching from them, and I pray that that would be the case today. Now, so far, we've studied the church at Ephesus, which was a good church. They had orthodox theology, but they had one thing wrong. They'd lost their first love, their fervency for the gospel, I take it. And the church at Smyrna was the persecuted church. The church at Pergam and Thyatira were being threatened from idle practices. Uh, the church at Sardis we saw last week as a church that was incomplete in their works. And today we come to the church at Philadelphia. Well, the word Philadelphia, as you likely know, means the city of brotherly love. This city was named by one of the old kings of Pergamum to honor his brother who was especially loyal to him. Now we Cowboys fans know Philadelphia by other phrases, but we won't mention any of those here. But in reality, it means city of brotherly love. That region of the world was known for its seismic activity, volcanoes and earthquakes, but had left the soil very fertile. And so they grew a lot of grapes in that region. In fact, today it's where most of 
the raisins in Asia are raised. Uh, it was uh, a city that had a sizable Jewish population. One of those ancient kings had imported 2,000 Jewish families from modern-day Iraq to populate that part of the world. Now, I'm giving you all those details, not so that you can win at Trivial Pursuit, but because we believe here in a method of scriptural interpretation called the historical grammatical method. If you heard any of our four speakers last week, they all used it. They were all men who had studied Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. And so they go back and immerse themselves in that language. But the other part of that, there's grammar on one side, which is Greek, the other is history. And you have to study the history, what was going on in that part of the world. So with that, they, we bring in archeology, span we bring in secular history, we bring in church tradition. We put all that together so that we can put ourselves as closely as possible into the cultural context of what was being written. And if you fail to do that, you'll miss some wonderful truths, especially in this letter to the church at Philadelphia, because there's little hints and details throughout that will help you. So let's go back now to verse seven and let's just walk verse by verse till we get to verse 13. The first thing that we see right away is the key of heaven. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, he's writing to the pastor, telling him to read this letter before the whole church of Philadelphia, but he begins by introducing himself. Remember in each of these seven letters, the Lord has a different title for himself, but it's no mistaking who the author is. It's not John. John is just the pen through whom the ink flows. The Lord Jesus is the ultimate author. And he describes himself, number one, he says, he who is holy. Now that word is very important in the Christian faith, isn't it? It reminds me of Isaiah chapter six, where the angels are zooming around the throne room of God, declaring holy, holy, holy. We see that also here in the book of Revelation. Day and night, they're declaring the holiness of God. And it has to be the holiness of God because no one else is holy. By definition, the word holy means totally untouched by sin. So there's a sense in which no human being is holy in and of themselves. And yet the Bible says, be holy because he is holy. And so if we are to have holiness, it has to be righteousness that is imparted from God to us. It can't be earned. And so the one who is holy in and of himself is God. He is claiming here to be God. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, not only am I the one who's holy, I'm the one who is true. Now that word true is a very specific word. It means no stain. There's no corruption. There's no hint of deceit within the Lord Jesus. He's altogether true. And of course he said so in John chapter 14, verse six, describing himself to his inner circle of disciples. He said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. That is, he is truth incarnate. And then he says, I have the key of David. Now that title might be strange to your ears. It harkens back to the Davidic covenant of the Old Testament. God promised King David that through him, there would always be one of his descendants on the throne of Israel. Now many skeptics have looked at that promise and say, aha, that's not true. Because you remember when David died, his son Solomon ascended the throne of Israel. And when Solomon died, Solomon's son Rehoboam ascended the throne of Israel. And Rehoboam was so unwise that in just a matter of weeks, the kingdom divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And both of those kingdoms ultimately were defeated and ceased to exist for hundreds of years. And yet God says there's going to be an eternal king from David's descendants. Of course, that's a messianic promise that when Messiah comes, he would reestablish and rule and reign in Jerusalem. 
And of course, this is a messianic title. He's saying when he says, I have the key of David, that I am the Messiah. So he says, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. I'm the Messiah. And then he says, the one who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Now he's using that image of the key. And with that key, he opens doors and shuts doors. And when a door that the Lord Jesus opens is open, no one can shut it. And when he closes a door, no one can open it. That speaks of his omnipotence. There's no one more powerful than he. Now you put all those things together. He says, I'm Messiah. I'm the Holy One. I'm the true one. I'm the omnipotent one. Isn't it foolish that people say Jesus never claimed to be God? He's certainly claiming to be God right here. He's saying this is God writing a letter to one of his churches. And then he adds one more attribute in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. That's his omniscience. He knows everything at once. Now he adds that phrase in, I believe, every one of these seven letters. Now, that can be good or bad, as we've seen so far. When we think of the attribute om omniscience, I don't know about you, but I'm two-minded about God's omniscience. On one, I take encouragement. The Bible says he knows the number of head on our head, and yet he provides for us. He knows when a sparrow falls to earth, how much more he provides for his children and knows about their needs. But then on the other hand, when he says, I know everything about you, I say, uh-oh. Because I wouldn't want to know, I wouldn't want you all to know everything about me. Probably you wouldn't want me to know everything about you. Every impure motive, every unclean thought, every word spoken in anger. Yeah, the Bible says, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, he loved us, didn't he? He died for us, the just for the unjust. So Christians should take joy in his omniscience, that he knows our deeds and yet he loves us. If you don't know the Lord, his omniscience should strike fear into your heart because he's a God who judges sins. But in this case, he's writing to a faithful church. And when he says, I know your deeds, it's a good thing because they've been faithful. Now I say they've been faithful. I didn't say they've been perfect. And though there's no rebuke offered here by the Lord Jesus, that doesn't mean the church at Philadelphia was perfect. You know how I know they weren't perfect? Because they had a pastor. And I've never met a perfect pastor. And it takes at least two members to have a church. And anytime you get two humans together, it's imperfect. There's going to be tension. But overall, the trajectory of this church was towards faithfulness and it was worthy of commendation. And because of that, because he knew their deeds, he says, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And Jesus says, I'm the one who opens the doors and no one can shut. He says, I've given you an open door. And then he says, here's why I'm giving you an open door. He says, one, because you have a little power. Now, that can be taken a number of ways, of course. This could be uh, a shot at them. You, you don't have much power. You're weak. It's not an attack on their faith because Jesus never requires perfect faith. He says, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. The faith has to be real. It has to be sincere. I think he's simply saying, you're a small church. You're outnumbered. There's few of you compared to the lostness all around you. And yet you have this great opportunity before you that I've opened. He says, you've kept my word now, there's a difference between hearing God's word and keeping God's word. To keep the commandments means to obey the commandments, both the prohibitions uh, and the commands to act. 
And he says, you've not denied my name. The implication in that phrase is they've had an opportunity to recant. There's pressure coming upon them from the outside world to recant and to reject the name of Jesus and disband as a church, but they have not. They've remained faithful. And so that's the key of heaven. It's the Lord Jesus himself. But then he comes now to the the door of opportunity that I've just described, because I think that's exactly what it is. When he says, I've opened a door for you, I believe he's speaking here of a door of opportunity. I say that because of, of what we read in the book of Colossians. Back in the book of Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae from prison, by the way. And this is what he says to them in chapter four. Just listen. He says to the church at Colossae, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. Listen to this, that God would open up to us a door for the word that we may speak forth from the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison. Paul's in jail. He writes a letter to people who are outside of jail and says, pray for me that a door would be opened. Now we might expect that door to be his prison cell. That's not what he's praying for. He's saying that a door would be open to preach the mysteries of the gospel, that we'd have an opportunity where we are to share our faith. Well, that I believe is what Jesus is speaking of to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I've given you an incredible opportunity to reach this region with the gospel. That's why I say you have to know a little bit about the historical context of the city of Philadelphia. It was in the interior. It had been established to be an outpost to promote Hellenism. Hellenism is a distinctly Greek way of life. And so they put in Greek architecture and the Greek language, and they had been very successful in promoting Hellenism and the interior of what is now modern day Turkey. And Jesus is picking up on that. And he says, now I've placed this little small church in this very geographically important spot so that they can promote not Hellenism, but the gospel. He says, I've opened to you a door of opportunity. Why? Because they've been faithful. You know what I take from that? That the earthly reward for hard work for the kingdom of God is the opportunity to work hard for the kingdom of God. The reward of faithfulness is more opportunity. Now, I, I think we've all seen a little bit of our own church in most of these six churches we've studied so far, but I see a lot of First Baptist Keller in the church at Philadelphia. This church is 138 years old this year, and I've been here 20 years, and um, I calculated the other day, I believe I have uh, preached about 500 funerals of our members in that 20 years. And I will tell you, uh, we have bid farewell to some of the finest Christians I believe are on planet earth, dear and godly and faithful people. And we still have a lot of them in this church today. And for 138 years, they've been faithful. And for the last eight months, we've been going through a hard time, haven't we? Our, not just our church, our entire civilization. You know, as I look back on it, as I've studied history a little bit, in that 138 years, that means this church has gone through two world wars, a great depression. Locally, we've uh, survived a fire and a flood. And uh, as I say, 15 years with me as your pastor, uh, that means you're pretty resilient. 
And do you know what the reward for faithfulness is? It's greater opportunity. That little handful of families that, that moved over here from Mount Gilead in the late 1800s and established a church here near the railroad, I don't believe they could have imagined the opportunities we have here. Here at the intersection of two very busy highways, 10 miles from an airport from which we can go to any address on planet Earth within hours with the gospel, that we've had the opportunity to plant churches in numerous states and several countries, send missionaries all over the world from this church, the financial resources he's blessed us with to help other Christians in other parts of the world, and the human resources. Brother Virgil Brown, who was one of our guest speakers last week, in his final sermon, just exclaimed, I look around here and this church is a gold mine. What he meant by that is, is we have incredible human resources, people who are trained in evangelism. Many of you have theological degrees. We have so many capable of teaching and serving, and yet the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And I'll say it before I say it again. I believe if we will be faithful through this present circumstances, our greatest days are yet before us. Because what is the reward for faithfulness? It's more opportunity. And so the Lord has positioned us similarly as he had the church at Philadelphia. He's thrown open wide a door of opportunity and yet we'll miss that opportunity if we're not careful. The scripture says to individual Christians, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And anytime a Baptist hears the word work associated with the word salvation, we get a little nervous, don't we? Because we know salvation is not of works, according to Paul in Ephesians. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And that's true. Salvation is all of God, but we participate in our sanctification. Now, I like to describe that verse in terms of inheritance. If you were called in the morning from a lawyer and says you're long lost uncle from Colorado has deeded you a mountain full of gold, you might get excited about that. But the gold has not been mined yet, it's still in the mountain. So you could uh, invest in a rocking chair or a pickaxe. If you, if you invest in a rocking chair, you'll go sit outside the mine entrance and rock your life away, you'll never get the benefit of the gold. But if you invest in a pickaxe, you'll go to work and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, this church were doers of the word. They had been given a great inheritance, a door of opportunity, but they didn't take it for granted. They seized that opportunity and the reward for their faithfulness was additional opportunity. And so we see this door of opportunity. The third thing we see though is the resistance of Satan. Haven't you been a Christian long enough to know that wherever God's at work, Satan's not gonna stand for it. He's going to resist it. He's going to fight it. And of course, this is what happens in Philadelphia. But it, the resistance comes from a rather unusual spot. It's not the Romans. It's another religious group in town. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Remember I told you there was a large group of Jewish people that had been imported from Babylonia into this city. And they were very influential in the city. And they didn't like Christians because many Jewish people felt like Christians were a sect of Judaism. They viewed them as a cult. 
And so this is how the apostle Paul felt when he was still called Saul. You remember the book of Acts. Saul was a very young man and a zealous Jew. He described himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says of uh, the tribe of Benjamin as touching the law blameless. He was educated by the best rabbis, went to the best synagogues, and he was zealous for Judaism. And so he wanted to stamp out this fledgling cult, so he thought, called Christianity. And so he's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians when the Lord Jesus in his resurrected state arrested him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was doing the Lord a favor by arresting these Christians. The truth is that he was making himself an enemy of God. And this is what was happening in Philadelphia. This Jewish synagogue had organized against the church and was trying to silence them and bring an end to them. But Jesus says, because you've resisted them and you've remained faithful, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I've loved you. Now, that sounds very martial or military-like. That's what would happen when you defeated your enemies. They would be paraded in front of the citizens and caused to bow down, and they would literally put their heel on their neck to show their submission but remember, the Apostle Paul says that in the Christian life, we don't fight with our fist, do we? We don't fight with human weapons because this battle we're in is a spiritual battle. We fight it upon our knees. And so I take that into consideration when he says, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet. Here's what I think that means. I think many of those self-same people who were causing them so much trouble were going to eventually come to faith in Jesus and they were going to bow with them in prayer one day, and they were going to join hands in worshiping the Savior. And so what a wonderful promise that is. And then he adds more promises to that. Remember, there's a pattern we find in these seven letters. It begins with the introduction. Jesus says, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one, I'm the one that has the key of David, the one who sees all. And then it moves to either a rebuke or a commendation or a mixture of the two. In this case, they got only commendation. He says, I've seen your deeds. You're faithful. You have just a little power, but you're not acquiescing to the culture. You're not recanting, even though this pressure is coming against you from the synagogue. He says, because of that, verse 10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a very controversial verse in chapter 3, isn't it? Because whole eschatological systems have been built upon it, uh, but we need not. You remember back uh, a few verses when we were studying the church at Smyrna. It was a persecuted church. They also didn't have any rebuke against them. But Jesus says, here's what I need you to know. It's going to get worse. And there's coming a time, a 10-day period of extreme persecution when some of your Christians are going to be arrested. Well, that was a very localized and temporary sort of tribulation. That's very different from what we read in verse 10. He says there's an hour of testing coming that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That is, it's a worldwide sort of tribulation. And I take this to be the great tribulation. 
that 70th week of Daniel we studied in the Old Testament, the, what uh, the Old Testament prophets often called the time of Jacob's trouble. But the controversial part of it is what does this word, I will keep you from the hour of testing mean? Well, we could take it two ways because in many places in the Bible, when Christians are persecuted or they're tested or they're tried, God just promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us, right? He doesn't say I'm necessarily going to remove you from the trial, but I'm going to be faithful to you through the trial and you're going to come through the trial better and stronger and more pure. But another way to look at this is I'm going to take you out of the trial. And those who uh, believe this speaks of the rapture hold to that view that he's going to remove not only the church at Philadelphia, but all of God's church before the tribulation began. Well, I will tell you that uh, I believe in the rapture. We can debate when the rapture will happen. But I, I think there's an important thing to point out. God has never promised that the church will never suffer. Be careful there. The church has been suffering for 2,000 years. The church today in many parts of the world are suffering incredibly. What he does promise here is that he will not abandon us even in the great tribulation right? He will keep us. And I know it speaks, and I, I, I'm convinced it speaks of those days because of what verse 11 says, I am coming quickly. That is the language of judgment. That's the language that Jesus used to his disciples when he was describing that judgment. He said, two will be in the bed sleeping, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be at uh, the mill grinding, one will be taken, one will be left. As we saw last week, he says, I'm coming quickly like a thief in the night. That is, in an hour when people are not expecting it, this judgment's going to come. So what do you think the message to the church at Philadelphia, who's been tenaciously holding on to their faith, even from pressure from the outside, what does he tell them to do? Some incredible act of strength or faith? No, he says, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep on keeping on. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. What did they have? They had Jesus. They had faith in him. They had the best thing. That's that song we've been singing all week. Hold tightly to Jesus. He's all we have, but he's all we need. And so he says, as long as you hold tightly to me, no one will take your crown. That's the crown of life. It's heaven. He's not implying there that someone could steal your salvation. We know from Romans chapter 8 that's impossible, right? Not even you can lose your salvation. John MacArthur says he knows that we can't leave our salvation because if we could, we would. But we can't. He's saying the proof of genuine conversion is perseverance. He that perseveres to the end, he shall be saved. That's the theme of the entire New Testament, certainly the first three chapters of Revelation, it's perseverance in the faith. Verse 12, he who overcomes, that is he who sees it through to the end, I will make him a pillar. Here, here's a series, a rapid fire series of promises for those who endure to the end. Number one, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. All right, let's go back to the historical setting. Remember I tell you they had earthquakes over there. And in the year 17 AD, they had a whopper. And it uh, destroyed everything. A lot of people got killed from these Greek 
buildings falling on top of them. By the way, did you uh, read the news this morning? I'm in the habit of getting up and getting on the internet and reading the top news stories. And the first story I came across this morning was a magnitude seven earthquake in Izmir, Turkey. Do you know that the city of Izmir, Turkey is on the ancient site of the city of Smyrna? One of the seven churches mentioned here and only 30 miles from Philadelphia. They had a big earthquake there and they've been having them for centuries. It's nothing new. And so it was such a problem in that part of the world that they started developing new types of architecture and building materials that could withstand these seismic shakes. But many of the people who had lived through these earthquakes were so fearful that they refused to move back into town. They move out to the countryside in much smaller buildings. And they would come to town to conduct business, but anytime there was a tremor, they would flee and run out of the city. I think Jesus is picking up on that here, and he's saying, if you'll stay with me, I'm going to make you a pillar. Well, we use that terminology today of someone who is a stable force in the community. We'll say he's a pillar of the community, right? Jesus says, I'm not going to make you a pillar of the community. I'm going to make you a pillar of the temple of my God that is in heaven. You're going to have stability forever and ever. That's the first promise. He goes on um, from there. He says, and he will not go in and out from it anymore. That's that picture of those people fleeing every time there's danger, running in and out of the city. As I read that article this morning, they interviewed a woman who had lived through that level seven earthquake this week. And she says, it was chaos and people started running everywhere. That's what people did then. That's what people do now. God's not a God of chaos and disorder, is he? And he says, if you'll endure to the end, you won't have to flee anymore. You'll not go in and out from it. You'll be stable. And then here's the greatest promise. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, my little boy, Andrew, is nine. And he's playing Little League Baseball. And they really got into it this year. This is the first year where they faced live pitching. And so we went to the store a few months ago to buy a baseball bat. You know, I discovered something. The cost of baseball bats has increased drastically since the last time I bought one. And so we bought one, and I couldn't believe we paid as much as we did, but we bought it. But you know, the first thing we did when we went home, his mother wrote his name on it to make sure everyone knew this was Andrew's bat. Well, that's all that's going on here. When he says he's going to write the name of my God and my city on it, he's saying, I'm going to write my name and your new address <laughs> on you. Because what happens when we're saved, the Bible says we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, right? And so when you're saved, your name and your address got changed. And Jesus says, I'm going to write the name and address on you permanently. I love to tell the story of a little boy in England some years ago, and he got into boats, loved boats, read about boats, drew pictures of boats, and finally his father bought him a kit to make a little model boat. And he had a blueprint with it, and he sanded down the wood, and he painted it, and his mom gave him some canvas, and he made some little sails for the boat. I mean, it was beautiful, perfect. He took it out to play with it. Every day after school, he would play with it. 
And, and one day it had rained and he was playing with this boat in the gutter on his street and a downpour came and it washed that boat down the street, down the sewer drain and out to sea. He was heartbroken. He loved that boat, had his name on it. And for months he uh, shuffled around town with his head down, grieving over his boat. And one day while he was in the downtown district, he passed a toy store and wouldn't you know it, right in the display window was his boat. Now it was a little worse for wear. Some of the paint had been rubbed off, one of the sails was torn, but there was no mistaking that was his boat. And he excitedly went in and he found the proprietor and said, Mister, that boat in your window, that's my boat, I want it. He said, no son, that's, that's my boat. I, I bought it from a traveling salesman. You, you'll have to pay for that boat if you want it back. And so he dug in his pockets and he meticulously counted out his coins. And sure enough, he had just enough. And the proprietor said, do you want me to wrap it up? He said, oh, no, I want to take it home right now. And as he was leaving the store, the store owner heard him say to the boat, little boat, little boat, you're twice mine. I made you and I bought you and I wrote my name on you. Well, that's what Jesus is saying the Lord has done. He made us, didn't he? He made us all in the image of God, but we rebelled. We sinned. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And yet he didn't leave us in that state of sin. He pursued us until he found us. And when he found us, he purchased us. And the purchase price because of our sinfulness is the blood of his dear son. And that is the gospel. Jesus Christ coming to earth to live a perfect life so that he could be the perfect once for all sacrifice and substitute for the sins of the world. And he's saying... You have proven yourself to be mine, and therefore I'm going to write my father's name and your new address on you. But there's one more promise. He says, and I'm going to write my new name on you. Now, the name Jesus was not an uncommon name 2,000 years ago in Palestine. It's a derivative of the word Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. A lot of young moms named their firstborn Joshua to honor that Old Testament saint. But Jesus has received a new name, but we don't know what it is until later on in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus coming back to earth, this time not riding the foal of a donkey when he was the suffering servant. This time he comes with a sword. This time he comes on a white charger. This time he comes with a great army and there's a name written on him, the scripture says, which is, do you remember? King of kings and Lord of lords. He writes that on his people. You say, well, what a blessing for the church at Philadelphia. They get all those promises because of their faithfulness. Well, friends, it's not just for the church at Philadelphia. Look at verse 13. He says, he who has an ear. This is an open invitation for whoever would submit to Jesus. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. This message is relevant and applicable in every epoch of history, including ours. We are the Lord's. He has made us. He has purchased us. And if we'll remain faithful to the end, he'll make us a pillar in the temple of the Lord. He'll write his name and our new address on us and his new name on us, and we'll spend eternity with him forever and ever. Does that bring encouragement to your heart? I don't know if you've heard, there's an election going on in this country. 
and a lot of people are upset. And come Tuesday evening, at least half the country is going to be more upset. But we need to remind ourselves as God's church that whoever is the president, Jesus is Lord, where he is. Nothing happens outside of his control. And whether your candidate wins or loses, your commitment to the Lord must remain unchanged. That until Jesus comes or he calls us home, we're going to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we've come to uh, the end of the sixth of these seven letters, and I have been blessed through the study of it, been challenged by it, been rebuked more than once, but that's good. Paul told the young pastor, Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In short, Lord, this is what we need. Father, we have seen a little bit of ourselves in all six of these churches, and I've seen a lot of First Baptist Church of Keller in the church at Philadelphia. Lord, I've been so blessed to know many faithful men and women of faith these 20 years, and many more still here. Father, I don't believe your work here is done. The Bible seems to indicate that the reward of past faithfulness is opportunity for future faithfulness. So, Father, we see before us now great opportunities to plant churches, to send missionaries, to encourage pastors, to reach our community with the gospel. Lord, help us not to miss those opportunities. When you place them in front of us, help us not to be fearful, but bold. Father, I thank you for the positive example of this little church there in that outpost of Greek civilization who regardless of the pressure that came against them, they were determined to hold fast to Jesus. And they did. May our descendants say the same of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.